Modern orthopedics is a rapidly evolving and exciting field that continues to push the boundaries of what is possible with treatment. Advances in technology, including minimally invasive surgical techniques and the use of robotics, have revolutionized the field of orthopedics, allowing for patients to quickly begin the rehabilitation process and can significantly improve the outcomes of orthopedic procedures. Here is your behind-the-scenes pass to one of the most well-established orthopedic practices in the DFW area. Welcome back to Modern Orthopedics. I'm here today with Dr. Faisal Zaman. He is our interventional physiatrist at Orthopedic Specialist of Dallas. So welcome. Thank you. First of all, I should we should tell about your history here at OSD, and we are excited to have you here. It's been about nine months. Uh, you've created, you know, a different uh, level of patient care for us. I think twofold, and I'll let you speak to it. One is we had never done spine prior to you, and right. then you enable us to do some in-office procedures. So, first, let's hear a little bit about yourself. I'm born and raised in New York to uh, immigrants who are both physicians as well decided I wanted to be a uh, spine specialist and uh, ended up settling in Salt Lake City, Utah for over a decade where I practiced for a long time, was uh, the founder of the initial physical medicine and rehab department at the biggest hospital in the state of Utah, Intermountain Medical Center at the Intermountain Healthcare uh, Organization. And uh, then, you know, family dynamics changed and decided my wife and I wanted to move to a place that had more cultural diversity and ended up coming to Texas. I graduated medical school in 2000, so I've been a practicing physician for over two decades. I have a real passion for uh, for the outdoors and for uh, active lifestyle. Physical medicine and rehab is based on uh, function, form following function, and uh, we do the best we can to set realistic goals, minimize patient suffering, and optimize outcome and uh, making sure people are integrating into society the best possible way that they can. So is that what brought you to physical medicine and rehab is more the functional aspect? Exactly. That's exactly right. And then what drove you to spine? Spine issues kept popping up in my life and the lives of other people that surrounded me. And um, I wondered, you know, why is this person, you know, limping? Why... Why are they hurting? What's wrong with them? And, you know, how, what, what can we could do to, what can we do to make them feel better? It just sort of naturally, I, I found out more about physical medicine and rehab and the spine component of it um, as time went by. You know, initially I did some research in cardiovascular interventional procedures for aneurysms and things like that. There was a Dr. Criado who was uh, a pioneer using stents for big aortic aneurysms back in the 80s and 90s. And I did some research with him. He was using fluoroscopy, which was live x-ray at the time. And I found that really interesting. And I had no idea, you know, I was, I was headed towards the direction of becoming an endovascular surgeon myself, uh, using fluoroscopy for that type of purpose, um, and started out my training in general surgery, and then decided that I wanted to transition to physical medicine and rehab. It was a much more younger and athletic population in some cases, if you went into the sports medicine aspect of it. And I found out that you could use fluoroscopy instead of uh, putting stents into the um, vasculature, you could use uh, needles to uh, dispense medication in precise locations to uh, block painful impulses of nerves and optimize function. And 
improve quality of life that way. And I thought this is fascinating and very similar to what I always had my eyes on as a child. And since you've kind of moved around to a couple different practices, that's what your passion is. Yeah, I've helped build um, spine programs in a few different places. So tell me about your patient population. Can anybody come see you? Yeah, essentially everybody or anybody can come see me. The, the, the one, uh, I should say uh, between the ages of 14 and, you know, 114, ideally. I, I don't really uh, see folks that are under 14 years old, just because the pediatric population is uh, under 14 is a little bit different. They're growing, they're changing. And from 14 on, we do see an, a number of um, sports medicine related issues that I have uh, a good handle of how to, how to manage and treat um, in the best non-surgical way possible. You know, the, the basis behind any successful medical outcome is making the right diagnosis. And you really can't treat back problems or back pain generically. So um, if I see a 14-year-old that has a um, musculoskeletal issue that may be related to a muscle imbalance or a strain or sprain that occurred while, while playing sport, that's going to be treated completely different from um, uh, you know, a high schooler who has what's called a pars interarticularis defect, also known as a spondylolysis, which can lead to something called spondylolisthesis, and ultimately a lumbar decompression infusion as they're aging, which is, I know, Greek for a lot of the people that may be listening to this podcast, but that's another topic. So anybody can come see you within those age demographics, chronic pain and acute flare up. If they're out weekend warrior and they tweak their back, they can get in and see Dr. Zaman. Or what if somebody is said for 10 years they've had back pain and they've gone to their PCP, same thing. They yeah, I'm absolutely very happy to see those folks. Now, chronic pain in general is a, is a different entity from acute pain and subacute pain. And it's different in the sense that the body learns to live with pain pathways that develop. And it's known that people that have pain that's been present for six months or longer, which is not arguable, is, is, is chronic pain. Some people will define chronic pain as three months or longer, but it's not arguable that anything that's been present for six months or longer is chronic. Um, that duration of discomfort is associated with a worse prognosis, and it's more challenging to get better. With that being said, if, if this is a particular individual who's had relapsing and remitting flare-ups of discomfort that have never been evaluated and diagnosed and um, hasn't been treated appropriately, I am more than willing and capable to help them sort of figure out what's going on and why has this been happening for them and set them on the road to hopefully recovery or improvement. And if they're better suited to be seeing a chronic pain doctor who can manage them long-term with various kinds of medication modulation strategies, I may send them off to uh, one of the chronic pain doctors locally who's better equipped to do that as opposed to somebody who can perhaps get them better to the level where they may not be dependent on any long-term medications and have a satisfying lifestyle with minimal suffering. So take me through kind of the course of treatment. If someone was to walk in the door and schedule an appointment with you. Let's say the average person with a back issue cleaning their garage from hurt their back comes in bent over not knowing what to do, where to go. Um, They've given it a few days. They've been to the ER. ER took x-rays, gave them some medications. They're still not getting better. What do we do now, doc? The x-rays look normal in the ER. Um, Hopefully I'll have access to those x-rays. I'll glance at them and agree that they look normal. And we'll talk about, um, statistically speaking, what the most common causes of back pain are. And based on the things that I might find in their physical examination, what I think their particular etiology is. Um, very often, um, physical therapy can be instrumental. You know, I like to 
um, empower patients with the tools that they need in order to optimize their function and take control of their healthcare in future. Um, there are a number of medication management strategies that we can employ. Over-the-counter medications called NSAIDs, which stand for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, are often very, very helpful. We're talking about things like ibuprofen or Aleve, which are fantastic medications for decreasing inflammation. However, they can impact other organs adversely, like the kidneys, the stomach, cardiac uh, issues can occur, hypertension so it's very important to look look at the big picture. Was this guy cleaning his garage out a younger, healthier person in their 30s? Or was it perhaps somebody who was in their late 50s or early 60s who may have had a cardiac event and have some stents and be on a blood thinner? Those types of folks, the older folks, the second set of patients that I, I just talked about here um, might be better off with what's called a COX-2 medication, which is a drug that may be a little bit easier on the stomach, decrease the likelihood of a gastritis or a bleeding ulcer. You know, each year in the United States alone, over 15,000 people present to the emergency room with anemia or bleeding ulcer, which is related directly to usage of these over-the-counter NSAID medications, ibuprofen or Aleve, or I should say ibuprofen or naproxen, as that's the, 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 real, the other name of Aleve. So we try to avoid those types of things uh, when necessary, but then Tylenol can also be very helpful. I talk to folks a lot about uh, things like um, using ice or heat, acupuncture, Tai Chi, Pilates, yoga, chiropractic, a number of different things, depending on the person, the individual, and what their tolerance is. And again, what I see on the physical exam, you really can't treat back pain generically. And then we'll always do a follow-up visit, depending on how much discomfort they were in or when I saw them in the midst of their flare-up perhaps in a week or two weeks. Uh, but if they seem relatively stable and they really want to give physical therapy a try, the longest I'll have somebody wait is probably six weeks after their initial visit with me and go from there. Depending on what I see, if they, uh, what we call lateralize as time goes by, which is a common phrase that um, physical therapists might use, meaning symptoms can start to extend down the arms or the legs. Um, that's usually a bad sign, especially in the setting of reflex changes or what we call a neurologic deficit, where there can be a sensory component that is you know, worsening if somebody starts to develop numbness or tingling or positive dural tension and weakness then an MRI is, you know, without question, very, very important and um, shouldn't be something that the insurance company should hesitate to authorize. You know, I, you know, talking about insurance authorization is a whole different can of worms. I, I wish we didn't even have to talk about, but it's an issue sometimes. If you tried as many conservative levels of treatment and a patient's not better, uh, your next thought, depending on the patient's symptoms and diagnoses and prognoses, you would do an in-office spine injection. It depends on multiple things, including the imaging, not just the patient presentation. So the patient presentation would tip me off as to whether or not they need higher level imaging. Um, but you know, in some cases, patients don't necessarily need higher level imaging and they may need what's called an electrodiagnostic study, which is also known as an EMG or a nerve conduction study, which is commonly used to diagnose nerve issues. The patient might need um, an ultrasound to rule out a blood clot in the leg that may be causing their symptoms if they present with 
uh, physical examination findings that seem more pertinent to that particular etiology of discomfort as opposed to a spinal issue. Some patients, you know, depending on their findings on physical exam may present with what we call ulnar deviation of the fingers and um, have an undiagnosed rheumatological condition or something called polymyalgia rheumatic. I mean, there's a whole host of differential diagnostics that as physicians we need to have in the back of our mind to make sure that we're having this particular individual go down the correct route of treatment and not ending up going down a rabbit hole of uh, stuff that we're going to employ that it's not going to potentially help the person. So really, I think it's very important that the doctor be well-trained and uh, experienced and um, proceed with not only imaging in a thoughtful way, but um, interventional procedures in a thoughtful way. So you, you mentioned interventional procedures, Lauren. So I, I do employ a lot of interventional procedures in my practice. I have done over 20,000 in my career. I mean, realistically, it's probably closer to 25,000. I stopped counting a number of years ago. I really, really um, look for an imaging study correlating finding with regards to what I see on a physical, ex- uh, a physical examination. So, for example, if I see a patient that has pain in the big toe the posterior lateral calf, maybe a little bit more lateral, um, and then the posterior lateral thigh, the gluteal region, or you know what patients will often come in describing as a pain in the butt, and they have no reflex changes, but they have sensory deficits in that, in that same location. They have what's called dorsiflexor weakness that may be very subtle, extensor hallucis longus weakness, also great toe extensor weakness. I mean, we're talking about um, a classic L5 dermatomal and myotomal pattern of weakness. And if they're presenting with a subtle foot drop with, uh, you know, ambulation or walking or a gait pattern, you know, other, other things that I might see on a physical exam and then, and then also have what's called dural tension signs, which some people may interpret themselves as just being a tight hamstring. And then I look at the MRI and on the MRI, I see foraminal stenosis, meaning narrowing at the L5 S1 segment in their spine, uh, which is where the L5 nerve comes out. Or I see uh, a central or a paracentral narrowing on that same side at the L4 5 segment, which could impact the L5 nerve as well. Number one, I want to see those MRI images myself. Um, because sometimes, you know, the radiologists who have a very difficult job of painting a picture of what they see on the imaging study um, may or may not necessarily document what I'm focusing on based on the advantage I have of being able to see the, the patient. So if I see the patient and I know specifically I want to focus on where the cell five nerve is coming out on the side of their pain, I'll focus on that. And the radiologist may see multiple areas where there's some degenerative changes and it's hard for them to really fixate on the, the one issue that I need to focus on. If, if I see that, you know, this is where the patient's pain's coming from and their physical exam correlates, I won't hesitate to tell that patient, you know what, let's give this a try here. You've done the physical therapy. The longer the pain's there for, the harder it's going to become to treat you're likely to do very well. These are the pros and cons. You don't need to be put to sleep for this type of a procedure. I'll walk you through it. I've done, you know, thousands and uh, we'll just follow up in the office in a week or two later and hopefully you'll feel a lot better. You know, often people do feel a lot better. Um, That's just one particular clinical picture that I may treat with an interventional procedure. And then there are a number of other types of procedures that I can do as well for people that don't have what we call radicular pain or pain shooting down the arm or the leg from an irritated spinal nerve. With regards to like an in-office procedure, like you said, is there, you know, the fear factor of, I have a provider that is obviously very knowledgeable. He knows the direction he's going to go, but he's going to 
in an office, put a needle in my spine. Like, how do you navigate that with the fear factor with patients? That's such an interesting question that you bring up, Lauren, because I have practiced in multiple states, you know, Utah, California, Nevada, Texas now. And this uh, concept of needing sedation or needing to be put to sleep for procedures like this is really a regional issue that um, I have found is such a bigger concern that patients have in the state of Texas than, for example, uh, where I was practicing initially in Salt Lake City. You know, in Salt Lake City, very rarely were people put to sleep for these procedures. And I do mean rarely. The majority of patients were wide awake and it was unusual for a patient to be put to sleep for an interventional procedure uh, for multiple reasons. You know, the, the, the risks of sedation um, exist um, that adds to the risk of the procedure. Uh, the duration of the procedure is increased. Um, and just like with surgical procedures, the longer a procedure takes, the more increased your risk of infection. And uh, then another factor that is pertinent for a lot of patients is the cost. Um, and cost is a very significant issue with healthcare these days in general. So not only is it advantageous from a patient safety perspective, in my humble opinion, and this is arguable, but it's also advantageous from a cost perspective. Um, now, of course, these things need to be done this way under the hands of somebody who's trained to do them this way and who's confident in doing this in this way and can walk patients through it. Um, and occasionally, sometimes oral sedation is something that I will offer, you know, a five milligram tablet of Valium an hour before the procedure can really help a lot for people that have a needle phobia or who, you know, are going to move around like a fish. You know, it's always hard to hit a moving target, obviously. I find that communicating to patients in a way that they can understand, breaking things down to them in terms that they will understand is very, very helpful. And letting patients know, look, we speak the same language. You know, I, I don't have a God complex here. We're on, we're on the same level. Um, if you're the president, you know, the mayor or the janitor or the garbage man, you're going to get the same treatment from me and, and we're going to speak the same language. And if you don't understand anything that I say, I want to want to make sure that you do understand it and please ask questions. And I want my patients to feel comfortable asking questions. So it, it always, you know, it works out well. So education helps minimize exactly, the apprehension yes. and fear. Thank you for summarizing and, what no. I said in one word. <laughs> that good. was a good word. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I think it's, you know, what you do in our minds, I think, seems relatively simple from the fact of we've seen numerous patients walk in the office, get an injection and walk out and they have immediate pain relief. And when the outside world views us, I I think the perception is this a physician is going to inject my spine and I'm going to be awake and people don't understand. Um, you've done it numerous times and we've seen incredible results. So I think that just knowledge, you know, yeah. education. And the more I tell people about what you do and how you do it, and these are the results that we see, they, they feel safe. They, kind of buy into it. And then ultimately they see the results. Yeah, absolutely. The most common thing I hear when we're done with procedures is that's it. That's it. Dr. Zaman, are you really done? You're kidding me. I can't believe that I was freaking out for that. But the other thing I just want to mention real quick is you, you mentioned immediate pain relief. So every single patient of mine who gets an injection with some uh, numbing medicine that's, that's used, which is essentially every injection I use numbing medicine. We always ask that patient before they leave, what percent pain relief have they had before they leave the office? And the vast majority of patients will say a significant number. We, we, we hear hundred percent relief all the time with injections that we do. I mean, I'm sorry, I said all the time and there's never, it's not all or nothing here, but a fair portion of the time, the vast majority of the time, I would say that we do get a lot of pain relief immediately um, when we're doing these procedures. 
And then sometimes upon follow-up, patients come back thrilled, but not always. And, you know, we take it step by step. Occasionally, procedures do need to be repeated from time to time. um, But that's also not a, you know, a regular thing by any means. And you, to make it clear, you treat the neck, the thoracic spine, the mid-back, and the low back. Absolutely, yeah, the entire spine. And then, you know, uh, it's frequent um, that people present with a shoulder or a hip issue where they think they have a shoulder or a hip issue. And uh, they end up being referred to me by a shoulder or hip specialist or even a knee or elbow specialist uh, who realizes that, you know what, the knee, shoulder, elbow, hip, whatever it was, was just fine. And their symptoms are likely related to a spinal etiology or cause. And I went ahead and help them with with that particular issue as well. And sometimes I'll diagnose hip issues and other things on on my examination and encounter with the patients and and make the appropriate referral for them too. So I can really see everybody, but I am a spine specialist. My fellowship training was in spine care. Kind of in summary, with regards to what I'm hearing about you is you're very collaborative. So within our organization, OSD, you do work with other orthopedic surgeons that see joints um, outside the spine, but then you kind of take it beyond the organization. And if I'm a patient coming in and you feel like you cannot provide the best level of service or the right treatment, you're fine to collaborate with physicians outside this organization, whether it be a spine surgeon or a chiropractor or whatever. Absolutely. That's 100% accurate. You know, I'm, uh, I mean, in, in, in the field of medicine that I'm in, being a part of a team is really very important. I can't tell you how thankful I am to be a part of a great team like Orthopedic Specialists of Dallas, where we have so many other great physicians and orthopedists, and I do collaborate with lots of other outside uh, physical therapists, spine surgeons, chiropractors, and others as well. The other thing I would like to mention I think is great about the way you practice is I think you kind of measure success based on the patient's um, level of success. So outcomes are going to be different based on patients. Some patients just want to walk, some patients want to run. And I think you take a very compassionate approach to say, okay, let's say Lauren, Lauren wants to get back to running. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to get her to that level of function because that's important to her. That's important to her lifestyle, her livelihood, where you and I know that some people just want to be able to get up off the couch, you know, or right. be even able to sit at work to perform their job. And so I think you take into consideration the needs of the patients and what's what their goal is, because sometimes our goals as providers are a little different. And, you know, taking your pain from a 10 to a two in many patient size is a huge success. Yeah, so. I com- that's exactly right. I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I see patients who have a difficult time just you know, wiping themselves and trying to get off the toilet. And then I see others, uh, you know, I've got a patient in my practice who's uh, nearly qualified multiple times for the Ironman um, triathlon and, you know, maybe realizing that it's time to start modifying activities a little bit and and still have a phenomenally active, uh, you know, uh, gratifying lifestyle moving forwards. So yeah, setting realistic goals again. How do you feel like you as an individual provider have um, grown since you started medicine? And then how do you think that's the healthcare has changed? Yeah. Oh, the healthcare change question. I'm going to try and stay away from the politics of that part. I'm going to tell one real quick, simple story about a thing that patients and I often discuss. So patients will be told sometimes that they have sciatica or they'll do some research on Google and they'll say, doc, is my, is it my sciatic nerve? Is it my sciatic nerve? And then this is a great segue to the changing technology in medicine because um, I explained to them that, look, you know, before the advent of modern imaging, MRI in particular, Doctors used to know, learn about the body by anatomical dissection of cadavers, the way we do in medical school. And we found out that there's this massive nerve in the butt 
that we labeled the sciatic nerve. And that nerve travels all the way down your leg. It splits up into in other nerves. And uh, we, we thought that if a patient is having a pain in the butt, which is a very common problem, the term, you know, I've got a pain in the butt comes from this particular issue that I'm um, a specialist in treating. Um, the term sciatica was coined. So I explained to patients frequently that the term sciatica really just means pain in the leg coming from a nerve. But very, very rarely is it the sciatic nerve that's irritated causing sciatica because of MRI. We know that usually it's a issue that's much more proximal or further up the chain that is resulting in their uh, sciatic pain down their leg. So technology is changing on, on, a, on a regular basis, which is improving our ability to help patients. You know, one of the ways in particular that in my practice, things have changed is that I'm able to see things a lot more clearly now on imaging to really pinpoint the exact cause of a patient's symptoms, which um, with the improvement in even x-ray technology and fluoroscopy, I can deposit medication in a more precise location and do that much better a nerve block. Uh, to improve the patient's discomfort that they were dealing with. Um, and consequently, a surgeon is able to visualize that much more clearly before they go in and operate on something that this is the specific issue that I need to treat and target in order to get this particular patient better if they don't get better with non-surgical treatment options. So yeah, I think that's my nutshell answer and I'll stay away from the politics. Thank you, Dr. Saman, for being on Modern Orthopedics. If anyone would like to find out more information, you can visit our website at dallasortho.net. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs>